The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 and 17 through 20. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Anne. All right. The return of the 72. It's an interesting passage. One of the things that just kind of jumps out at me when, when I read this passage, and maybe this has been the case for you, is you're going along in the Gospels and you, and you get this setup that Jesus has people that he calls to be his disciples. And that number quickly becomes a, uh, a pretty concentrated 12, right? That Jesus has 12 disciples. And then you come to this passage and all of a sudden there's 72. Who are these people? You ever wonder about that? It just kind of happens. And I think what we're meant to understand is it didn't actually just kind of happen. What what happened was Jesus, when he would go around and he would teach and he would heal, you read the stories of people like Nicodemus and Zacchaeus and and, uh, the blind beggar and, and, you know, people who, who were on the receiving end of his ministry put their faith in him and began to follow and he would preach and there would be crowds that would press in up to 5000 people right and they would and they and he would feed them and so this 72 is the 12 disciples but it's also others uh, that put their faith in Jesus and it's a good thing to think about because the reality is a lot of these names that come past us in scripture like Zacchaeus as an example, uh, who we just talked about a couple of weeks ago, they end up getting in the mix with Jesus. They have to, it has to be that way. It ha- that has to be what's happening. You have people like 
Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You have folks that he healed, that he performed miracles on. And uh, so this group of people that are putting their faith in him, while their names may not be listed, what we're seeing here in this passage is evidence that Jesus has followers beyond the 12 um, that are not just curious about him, but are eager to then go out in his name and proclaim in his name. And so that's what's happening here in this passage. I just wonder, I wonder who, who would be some of the surprising names that would appear uh, on that list. There's an article that came out last month, I think it was, um, by an, uh, a writer named Kate Shelnut from Christianity Today. And the title of the article was this, Half of Millennial Christians Say It's Wrong to Evangelize. So that's the name of the article, and, and what she wrote in the article was this. She said, new research from the Barna Group and the creators of the Alpha Course offers some disappointing news regarding the 20-somethings and 30-somethings now on deck to carry on the faith. Nearly half, 47% of practicing Christian millennials, churchgoers who consider religion an important part of their lives, believe evangelism is wrong. They're more than twice as likely as their parents and grandparents boomers and elders respectively, to say that it's wrong, and this is the key line, that it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. They believe it's wrong to do that. And Shelnut went on to note the irony of the study's finding, and it's, and it's this. In suggesting that evangelism is wrong, these Christians are instead acting as evangelists for a cultural commitment to religious pluralism, which is in itself a very specific way of thinking about God and thinking about truth, right? To say it is actually incorrect to try to persuade somebody to believe what you believe if they don't is because you believe something else. See, when we believe something is wrong, it's because there is something else that we believe is right. That's how that works, right? If I believe something is wrong, it's because it contradicts something else that I believe is true, something I believe is right. And so in our cultural moment, many believe that it is right to insist that no one should claim to believe in a universal truth, only an individual truth, the great irony of that being that it is a universal truth claim to say that no one should believe in a universal truth. You see how that is problematic just a little bit, right? So all individual truths, no matter how different they are from one another, our culture would say, um, must be considered equally valid which itself is a very specific universal truth claim. But Jesus in the Gospels does not even dip his toe in that water, right? Jesus in the Gospel, he calls his followers to bear witness to him as the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus was not a universalist in any way, shape, or form. 
It's a non-negotiable fact of Scripture. Jesus' great commission to the church is to do what? Is to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what Jesus is saying to Christians is you're called to be a Christian on mission and you're called to be a Christian in public. So your faith, while being a very personal thing, is not a private thing. It's not yours to keep. So the question, and, and, and getting behind this, one of the problems of being reluctant to bear witness is just the reality that everybody evangelizes. Everybody does. We evangelize sports teams. We evangelize food. We evangelize music and books. We have things that we love, and we say, I want you to love it too. I want you to discover what I know, and I want you to love it too. I'm, we do this, right? We, we do this. Here's the thing. Part of the human experience is searching for points of connection. That's foundational to relationships, is we are searching for connection. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis talked about friendship in this way. He said this. He said, quote, friendship arises... When two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste, which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. The idea that we shouldn't evangelize defies human experience. And it, because it happens all the time in so many ways. In fact, the fact that we're searching for what we have in common in part, we both like this team, we both like this food, we both like this guitar, we both like this band, the fact that we're searching for what we have in common in part comes from an innate quest to know what we share in common in full. What is the ultimate thing that we share in common as human beings? It's the quest for human meaning, right? Are you tracking with me on this? That evangelism is the search for the meaning of life in a lot of ways. What do, what do human beings, what do we as people share in common? Follow me on this one. I wrote it down. I'm not sure if it's going to land. I'm going to go with it. <laughs> if one person woke up one day on Mars... Not sure how he got there, and found himself a few miles away from somebody else who also woke up on Mars and was also unsure why they were there. Would those two not come together and try to understand how they came to be there and why? Why should it be any different for two people on Earth? We come together to try to understand how we got here, and why. Because if small points of meaning and shared experience matter, why would we assume that ultimate points of meaning and shared experience shouldn't? This is the point of evangelism, 
This is the point of bearing witness to Christ. It's saying that big question, why are we here? What's it all for? Christianity answers that with clarity and with universal truth. So in this passage, Jesus sends out 72 disciples and he does it in much the same manner that he did in the chapter before where he sends out the 12. And what he says is he says, go out in pairs. Don't take anything with you but what you need. Just stay focused on what it is that you're doing. Don't get distracted. Don't stop along the way. Do what it is that you're going to do. And they're to proclaim ultimate points of meaning. They're to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come to them in the person of Jesus Christ. And they're to minister to people in the name of Jesus. And they're to call people to believe in Jesus and to respond. And they're not called to do this forcefully. Because Christianity is not a tribal religion and genuine faith is not something that you can force somebody to have. But they are to call people to believe. And they're to approach everyone in a posture of peace. And they're to walk away from anybody who responds in hostility, even as they're warning them to consider what it is that they're rejecting and to do it strongly. So how does that translate to us here? Pretty, pretty simply, actually. Um, there's a commentator named Michael Wilcock who, who kind of noted four characteristics of outreach that are seen in this passage. Um, that it's a work we're called to, that it has an element of danger, that it requires single-mindedness and clarity. So work, danger, single-mindedness, and clarity. It's our, it's our work. Christians are called to this. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Be Christians in public. Disciples are called to be this, right? At Christ Presbyterian Church, public faith is one of our core values. It's one of the things that we, we talk about a lot. It's one of the things we put a lot of our effort and our resources and our time behind. NIFW, the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, is a big expression of that. That we're trying to help people understand how in our work and in our friendships and in our neighborhoods, we want to be a church that's filled with people who are known for being followers of Jesus Christ. We're peaceable about it. We're not forcing it down anybody's throat. And yet at the same time, we're being open and evangelistic and welcoming people and trying to be, you know, trying to be inviting. I don't want to get ahead of myself because that's coming up. The work is dangerous. Um, that witnesses will face critics and opponents. One of the things that's um, unique in many ways to being a Christian in America is it's not as dangerous here uh, as it is for many Christians around the world. Many Christians around the world, it's, their lives are in danger for bearing witness to Christ. Um, in America, a lot, of the, a, a lot of what people would experience in this kind of danger category is maybe ridicule, uh, is maybe... Um, not getting a preferential treatment that somebody else gets because of what it is that you believe or what people assume about you. Our lives are rarely in danger in the States for our faith, and yet at the same time, we face critics, we face opponents, we endure ridicule, and some will be persecuted for their faith about being open about it. 
But one of the things that we learn from this passage is don't be surprised about that. Don't be surprised about that. The gospel is an offensive message because part of the foundation of the gospel is that you are a sinful person with a broken relationship with your creator. And you can't fix it. But it has been addressed. It's been addressed perfectly just through the righteousness of somebody else. We must be single-minded in this, right? When the 72 go out, they forego creature comforts. They forego luxuries. They forego their own personal agendas. Don't stop along the way and strike up conversations with people um, outside of the town that you're going to. Go to the place where you're going. Uh, The call to live as a witness for Christ um, does not sit alongside other calls and interests. It takes priority and precedent over them. So we're called to do this. One of the ways scripture talks about this is being ready in season and out uh, to, give, to give an answer uh, for the faith that you, that you profess. And then last, we must be clear. This one is so important, um, especially in our day and age, is to remember that the gospel is a gospel of content. It's not just a gospel of, hey, there's a God out there and he's cool and uh, he likes you and uh, he likes everything, really. And... Uh, Everything's, it's going to be okay, you know. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a gospel of content. And the believer is called to be clear. We're called to be proclaimers of it. So we'll come to the communion table later. And we'll take these elements, this bread and this cup. Christians will. And we'll do this. And Paul says, when you do this, you proclaim. What do you proclaim? You proclaim the Lord's death, okay, until he comes again, right? We're saying, I'm proclaiming that Christ lived and died in my place, that he reconciles me to God by his finished work on the cross, by defeating the power of death. I also proclaim that this isn't over, that he's coming back and he's going to make all things new. And so the message of the gospel that we proclaim is a gospel that is focused. It's focused on Christ. It's focused on his kingdom. It's not about self-actualization or personal prosperity or self-consciousness, uh, self-confidence, competition with others, building platform, any other self-aggrandizing agenda. It's not about that. The focus of the message as a witness of Christ is that Christ has come and his kingdom has come with him. And so... This call that we have to bear witness to Christ, I want us to talk about this um, because at its core, evangelism is truth-telling. It's, it's telling the truth. In fact, I would say it this way. The call to bear witness to Christ is an ethical matter for you and for me. If your faith is in Christ, your call to bear witness to Christ is, is a matter of ethics because It's not yours to keep. You don't own the gospel as the sole proprietary owner of it. It's a message that you receive and then you give away. You and I were never meant to be the gospel's destination. It was not meant to come to us and stop. It was meant to come to us and then pass through us. We're meant to pass along what we have received and to proclaim it. And it's more than just it's a good idea. It's an ethical responsibility that we have. We're, we're trustees, in a way, of the message of Christ. But we're not the sole beneficiary of it. I don't know if I used any of that language right, you people who are working in insurance and all that stuff. But for those of you who aren't, you know what I mean. 
See, the gospel doesn't just change what we think. It's not just an intellectual idea that we toy with. It changes our lives. It changes who we are, right? In Christ, we become people with a purpose, with, a, with an end, right? And the chief end of living is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Confession says, right? That we, the, the, the Westminster Catechism, sorry. Is, is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, what's the meaning of life? To enjoy God and to glorify him forever. That's, that's what we're called to do. We're called to live in this intimate relationship with the one who made us, to know him and to love him and to be in relationship with him. That's what we're called to. And so we become, by faith, people who are joined to Christ in such a way that nothing in creation will be able to separate us from him. That's part of the message of, gospel, of the gospel, is when your faith is in Christ, nothing can break it. Your security in him is so tight and so resolute and so eternal. Nothing can threaten it. Nothing can break it. And when you start looking at it that way, that the gospel is, I was made for a relationship with my maker, and he has made that relationship possible through the sacrifice of his son and has brought me into his family in such a way that nothing will ever be able to separate me from him. All of a sudden, evangelism is not just a task that we perform, but it's really something more like a song. It's like a song that flows out of us from someplace deep inside. This is my story. This is my song. And that flows from a deep affection for Jesus. You may ask, well, what if people aren't interested in hearing the gospel? Here, here's, here's been my experience. Take it for what it's worth. Um, people are looking for hope. People are looking for specifically the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what churches culturally thrive right now? Churches with conservative theological commitments. You know what churches struggle to exist right now? Churches that walk away from or distance themselves from any kind of orthodoxy which would tell somebody, you can't believe whatever it is you want to believe. Unitarian churches are not bursting at the seams. Bible-believing churches that are proclaiming the gospel are growing. Why? I think the way I would say it is people want to be offended by the gospel. We want to be told things that are true. And brothers and sisters, we know when we're being told something that's not true. We know when somebody says, your truth, even though it completely contradicts this other truth, both of them are completely valid, we all know that doesn't make any sense. It can't be that way. And so it may, it may, it may taste like, like a spoonful of honey right now and just, and just soothe me, but it doesn't comfort me. People are looking for the hope of the gospel. Not everyone, and not all right now, but many are right now. And when you're a Christian in public, guess what happens? You end up on a call list. You end up on a call list for people when they're in crisis. 
I can't tell you with the advent of social media how, how often that happens for me because I'm a pastor on Facebook, you know, because all my friends from forever we're all connected somehow, and they, and they know I'm, people reach out to me in crisis that I haven't spoken to in 25 years, and the reason is because they know what I do. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. People are looking for truth because one of the things truth does is it brings people to their knees and truth has the power to do this. And so our outreach then is truth-telling. It's telling a story that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Whatever your method, you're called to speak truth and to give the gospel away because it's not yours. It's not yours to keep. The kingdom of God has come and it's come in the person of Christ. So the 72, they return, they're amazed by what they've seen. They're really amazed by what they've seen. You and I would be too. If you pray for healing and healing happens. If you cast out a demon in the name of Jesus and something happens that you can't explain. Some of you have been in situations, maybe on international missions situations, where you've seen things happen, spiritual realities that you just you don't see happening cool springs that much but you can't explain it. But somehow God worked. They come back, lives are transformed. Even more impressive is the fact that demons trembled in the fear of the name of Jesus. That they were able to use the name of Jesus in a way that was effective. And Jesus affirms, he says, yes, that's what happened. You're right, that's what happened. And he says, I saw Satan falling like, like lightning. In other words, what he's saying is, as you were out ministering, I saw Satan in a sudden freefall. I saw it. It was effective. And he affirms right on the back of that. He says, look, I gave you the authority to do this in my name. And so they were acting on his behalf as though he was there with them. That remains true for us today. Christians... We have the Holy Spirit who is with us, who goes before us, and God works through his people and he does so according to his power. We may not always see it, we may not always understand how he does it, but he does. And so they're amazed. They're like, we're just, it was like there was nothing we couldn't do. This is where you have that passage that can get misused. Jesus says, uh, let me read it specifically so that we don't, He says, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all powers of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Um, Let's be language nerds for a minute. There's a difference between the word will and the word shall. Okay? Nothing will hurt you is probably nothing. You'll be fine, right? Nothing will hurt you. The word will speaks to what can happen in the future. The word shall speaks to what must happen in the future. So the word will is descriptive. The word shall is authoritative, right? And so the sun will rise tomorrow is, yes, of course, we know the sun will rise. The sun shall rise tomorrow is because there's a reason it's going to happen. 
It shall rise because of the way that the cosmos was made, right? So there's a difference here. And so I tell you that to say when Jesus tells his disciples, nothing shall harm them, he's not saying nothing will harm you as much as, you know, as as somebody might say, I'm sure you'll be fine. He's saying nothing is permitted to harm you. Nothing is permitted to harm you. More specifically, he's saying nothing is permitted to harm you because I'm in charge, because I have authority here. And so he has forbidden ordinarily harmful things from causing harm to these people who are carrying out this particular mission of bearing witness to Christ. And because Christ went before them in this mission, it couldn't fail. Of course, it's not always that way, right? It's not the case that people who bear witness to Christ all remain unharmed. History is full of martyrs. And we need to understand that Jesus is not saying no one ever will ever be harmed in bearing witness to me. He's saying you. Nothing is permitted to hurt you in this mission I've given you here. And so Jesus warns us not to hang our hats on the seeming success of the mission. Uh, Setbacks, sorrows, by the way, are often part of faithfulness. Jesus warns us not to hang our hats on the seeming success of our mission. Success in the eyes of the world doesn't look the same as success in the eyes of God. God uses suffering sometimes. He uses us being harmed sometimes to reveal a victory uh, to, 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 to cause others to see in ways that we don't see through the eyes of God. He uses suffering to remind us that the real victory is that our names are written in heaven. It's interesting, you see these disciples having done these powerful things, and Jesus is warning them, don't fall into the same trap that Satan fell into, where you start to boast in the power that seems to just flow from your fingertips. What you instead should rejoice in is that your names are written in heaven. Our chief cause for joy should be an eternal one. Bearing witness to Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have a relationship with him, and he says, I want you to tell your friends about me. I want you to tell the people in your life about me. I want you to tell your coworkers about me. It's an invitation for you to participate in his greatest joy, his great joy of calling people to himself. And so we participate in that. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need any of us to do this, right? The Apostle Paul on his way to Damascus to persecute and put Christians to death, Jesus intervened in a bright light. His conversion happened in the moment and there wasn't a single evangelist around helping Paul understand in that moment what had happened. There were later, but in that moment, Jesus Jesus, Jesus had it under control. He took care of it. It was his thing. He doesn't need us and yet he calls us to be his witnesses to include us in his joy. Why would he call us to share in his joy now? It's because he calls us to share in his joy forever. And so we get to taste of it now. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, know this. There is, and this is what Jesus is saying, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, know this. There's a book. And that book is a census. It's a list of citizens. Citizens of the kingdom of God. The names are written in blood. And it is an irrevocable charter of an eternal, glorious kingdom that will never fall. 
which this world has experienced in part and one day will forever. The call to bear witness to be Christians in public, to bear witness to Christ in this world is a call that we have. But remember that in that book, your name is written. And that's your cause for joy. Your name is there because his kingdom is your eternal home. And there's nothing there that will ever be able to harm you, ever. So if you want to celebrate an outcome, celebrate that outcome. And until that day, be a Christian in public. Pray with me. Lord, it can be really easy for us to overcomplicate what it means to be your witness in this world. To start lining up things like seminars and books we have to read and seminary classes we have to take and uh, credentials and places in the world we have to go. When in reality, most of the evangelism that we will ever do in our lifetime will be with people that we already know, people that we're already in relationships with, people where our bearing witness to you comes pretty naturally through the course of those relationships and the proximity that we have to one another. Father, I pray that this church here in this location and in our other locations would be a church that's filled with people who are bearing witness to you, trusting in you for the outcome and finding their joy in the fact that their names are written in heaven. And that that would be what sets us free then to proclaim freely this, this message that comes to us but isn't meant to stay with us, is meant to pass through us. Lord, we know that your spirit has to go before us if anything is gonna happen and yet you tell us that that's what you'll do that you work through us, that your spirit is at work in the world through the lives of your people. And so we, we rejoice in that, Father. We thank you. Thank you for the gift of the local church. And uh, we thank you for the communion table as well as we prepare to come to that. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.